0: time for breakfast. Trauma for breakfast is a crowded table of wounded children, parents, spouses, caregivers, and weary souls. Together, we join in honest conversations about the behaviors and challenges of parenting and working with children who have experienced trauma. There's always room for one more at the table to share in the stories, science, and healing as we learn to better understand and care for each other. We are a table without shame or judgment because life can be hard and lonely. And we all know that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I'm Stacy. I'm a mother of seven children and have fostered for over 13 years. As an RN and former public school teacher, I quickly realized this type of parenting was not taught in a textbook or class. Let's learn together to parent different, not harder. Welcome to Trauma for Breakfast welcome to trauma for breakfast i'm your host Stacey Gagnon, and today i am joined by dr adam signs the first time that i actually saw adam was him doing a ted talk and i literally laughed my head off and then i was crying and then i was laughing again and i was so excited when he agreed to come on and talk to us just about the power of a teacher adam is a best-selling author of the book the power of a teacher and also the eq intervention Adam has a list of degrees that I will add to the show notes because they're very extensive, but he does have his PhD in school psychology and he's in clinical practice and he just comes to us with so much knowledge. And with that, we are going to jump right into part two of our interview with Adam Sines. Adam, can you just start out this podcast today and just talk to us a little bit about how you've seen kids' behaviors change in schools over the last 20 years?
1: Well, um, what, what I've seen in, in behavior is that the, the, the frequency, the intensity and the duration of um, behaviors that negatively impact learning have increased across the board. And I'm not just talking about for the, the small percentage of the population that have experienced significant adverse childhood experiences, you know, um, that, that have been through foster care or trauma. Yes, with that. But even kids that that um, have fairly stable families, you know, they're they're fairly financially stable and relationally stable. Uh, The problem is that, that we live in a world right now that's characterized by volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. And I think our our thermostat is just set to low grade anxiety. That's our baseline. Um, and so then you you add to that. Oh, and by the way, you've got a report due. And oh, by the way, you've got high stakes testing going on. And oh, by the way, you know you've got social media, and someone posted something about you that wasn't flattering, uh, even though it was untrue. I mean, you put all that together, and what that means is that more and more kids are going to be. Uh, more and more um, debilitated in terms of their capacity to to learn. So the change I've seen is that more and more kids are struggling.
0: And what what about in the last? Year with the pandemic.
1: Well, it's interesting with the pandemic. You know, I remember around this time last year, uh, around May of 2020 and into June in the summer, people in the media were talking about, like, oh my gosh, look at all the devastation, psychological devastation the pandemic has caused and the kids and all of that. And for those of us who have been in mental health for, you know, 20 plus years, we were thinking, like, what are you talking about? The pandemic didn't cause this. It just exposed it. This has been going on for years. We just collectively as a nation have been in denial about it. And the pandemic has made us really, really. Realize What's going on, you know, Um, because kids and families were home, there were more reports of domestic violence, more reports of abuse, you know, Um, and again, all of that had been going on. Now, that's not to say that the pandemic is not having a broad scale and devastating, psychologically negative impact on us, it is, but I think that's going to play out for years and years to come. Um, And so in some ways, we don't even know, like how badly the pandemic has affected our collective psyche.
0: I absolutely would agree. I think the ripple effect from this is going to be pretty devastating. You know, I know in Arizona, our child fatality, like non-accidental child fatality has has quadrupled. Mm. Our teen suicide has quadrupled. Wow. And, you know, and, and these are just manifestations of, of mental health and addiction and those kind of things that we see in, in the population. But I think as a teacher, and I'm listening to this and it feels very overwhelming, mm-hmm. What would you recommend if you, if you were teaching in a classroom, Adam? What would you what would you recommend to that teacher that's sitting there dealing with all of this right now?
1: Yeah, well, the the what I would recommend um, first thing I would do is say this: you know, you you don't have to be a thoracic surgeon to perform CPR, and sometimes CPR can save a person's life. You don't have to be a licensed psychologist or a, a licensed professional counselor to offer basic mental health first aid, and sometimes that can really really be a huge help, right? And so when we work with educators uh, across the country, our goal is not to to train them to be mental health professionals, but our goal is to give them some kind of framework for understanding mental health first aid and things that they can do that are actually helpful. So the first thing I would do would say to a teacher is just know that there are some things you can do that are that, that don't require a deep level of mental health sophistication. The basic training can go a long, long way. And then the second thing I would say is this phrase has been almost overused in the last 12 months, but practice self-care. Just the, the question is, what boundaries do I need to have in place in my life as an educator to keep me sustainable? Because I won't be able to help any of the kids anywhere if I'm not in a school right? And so if, if I go find another job somewhere else, then there, there are no kids that I will be able to help in that capacity. So then the question is, well, what do I need to do to keep myself sustainable? And I would start thinking about what boundaries need to look like around time and energy and money and um, relationships and all that other stuff so that I can set myself up for sustainability.
0: Well, and I, and I love how you said that about long-term sustainability, because man, it, it is easy to have You know, caregiver burnout or compassion fatigue, or really teachers, what they're quitting at high rates at this point. Mm -hmm. And so, I think when we're looking at co-regulating students in a classroom, we first have to be regulated. Mm. And so. Talk to me about emotional intelligence. Yeah. Talk to me about emotional intelligence for myself, but then also for my students.
1: Right. You know, I, I tell teachers all the time, I can't teach trigonometry unless I know trigonometry, and I can't, I can't lead a, a student through emotional intelligence or social and emotional learning through any model of that unless I'm living it and practicing it. So what does that mean? Well, I mean, two core. There, there are four main components of emotional intelligence. It's self awareness. What am I thinking and feeling? Number two is self regulation once I know what I'm thinking and feeling, how do I regulate it? Number three is empathy. What are you thinking and feeling? And number four is social skills. How can I connect with you? And when, when I'm self-aware and self-regulated and I'm empathetic toward your, your thoughts and feelings and connecting with you, then, then we make good decisions. Like that's me living my best life. And so back to the idea of, I can't teach what I don't know. We all the time are talking to teachers about what do I need to know about myself? You know, my stress, my emotions, my personality style, based on my personality style. Some kids are going to feel real, real easy for me. And some kids are going to feel like an uphill walk for me because our personalities are different. So the goal here, first step isn't to change the student. The goal is to say, how do I understand myself and regulate myself? And once I'm self aware, once I'm aware of my stressors and regulating it, once I'm aware of my emotion and regulating it, once I'm aware of my personality and regulating it, then I'm centered, right. Then I can actually become a a secure relational base for all the kids in my classroom. And I'm sustainable because I'm practicing this sort of emotional hygiene as I go and I don't let things go and go and go and go and go. And then I I have a breakdown or after a buildup, you know? Um, So I would say that is, is, you know, practice self-awareness and practice self-regulation. And then, and then really, I think the best SEL intervention, social, emotional learning intervention for every student, every student man i don't care black white gay straight gifted and talented slow learner whatever whoever the student is the best intervention is a healthy adult living a centered life you know and, and once i get to that point then then i'm in a good place i mean that alone that alone is is a wonderful intervention
0: and i i absolutely love you said that because we teach so much with teachers on how to set up environment like here you you know here's how you set your environment up for social emotional learning. Here's what this looks like, you know, brain breaks and let's talk about sensory and let's talk about schedule and routine and all these things to support kids that have brains that have, you know, trauma or high number of ACEs or those things. And it's so funny because we then flip it and we say, okay, how have you set up your environment? Mm. Are you taking brain breaks? Are you limiting technology? Are you getting exercise? Are you practicing the things that you are managing within your classroom. And interestingly right. enough, most of the time we aren't right. Yeah. When we're struggling the most in co-regulating children, right. typically it's because we are not regulating ourselves. Yeah, and, and we say that all the time, a dysregulated adult cannot regulate a dysregulated child. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And so I, I love how you say that about starting with yourself. Mm-hmm. Can you, talk to us a little bit about what have you seen to be the most effective application in a classroom that's SEL? I mean, there's all these different ideas and all these things, but I'd love to know, I mean, just in your opinion, what has been one of the most effective practices that has been implemented in classrooms that you've seen?
1: If I had to pick one thing, you know, someone once said that that, that the the smallest unit of self-care is a single breath, right? And um, so breathing, Breathing, as basic as that sounds, like something we do every day, but we don't do it, right? Breathing and trained trained breathing, um, whether, you know, you're doing like a four, six, seven breaths or, or a square breathing or whatever kind of breathing technique, and there are so many of them, that act alone changes my biochemistry. It gets me out of my fight or flight. You know, it, it, it shifts me out of my sympathetic nervous system into my parasympathetic nervous system. Breathing takes me out of anxiety and it puts me in out of fight or flight and it puts me into rest and digest. Breathing, it, it just uh, that alone, if we practice breathing, we would be healthier. Physically, we would be healthier psychologically. Uh, But it seems like, no, that's too easy. It can't be that easy. Yeah, actually it is. It's just a matter of of practicing it. So breathing is is one thing. Breath control is just, it's it's huge. It's foundational. Um, And then I would say the second thing is just giving kids a roadmap to manage emotion. What is an emotion? It's fuel. It's fuel. That's what, that's what emotion is. Like the the Latin root of of emotion is movere, which means to move. It's energy. It's emotional. It's psychic energy. And so how can I connect those emotions to behaviors that, how can that emotional energy fuel behaviors that will make my life better instead of making it worse? So I'm angry. I could destroy the room or I could write a letter, you know, or I could practice breathing or whatever it might be. And once kids understand like, hey, you can feel whatever you can hate me, you can hate school, you can hate white people, you can hate black people. Like whatever your feelings are about anything, it's not my job to tell you what you need to feel. It's my job to help you regulate that emotion. So whatever you, you have anger towards, whether it's a, a group, a people group or school or whatever. Cool. Now, what do we do with that to make your life better? That is the second piece of it is just giving kids a roadmap to manage their emotions.
0: Talk to me about the teacher who's struggling with the student who is just every day a boiling kettle of anger and fear and all of the things that they are just struggling to manage to talk to that teacher right now.
1: Well, I understand why you're frustrated. You know, uh, if you weren't in frust- if you weren't frustrated and overwhelmed and burned out, I would say one of two things is true. Of you either you're a superhero or you're in denial because that daily thing is like who wants to sign up for that? You know, it'll, it will it'll just tear you down, it'll wear you down. So, if you're frustrated, let me validate your feeling. It's it's perfectly okay for you to feel that way. And I don't think anything less of you. So, then back to practicing self uh, self-awareness and self-regulation. One thing you might want to say is why am I so frustrated? You know, because they call me this, 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 and this, and they cuss me out. And okay, well, why do those words bother me? Uh, Mm -hmm. And then you start getting into like, well, I have this insecurity about the way I look. I had this insecurity, you know, when I grew up, when I was that age, uh, you know, I was always made fun of or whatever. So one thing we have to do is clean our own house and and look in and say like, where, where am I like a wounded healer? Like, where am I still carrying around unresolved pain from man, all of my stuff, like my relationship with my mom, my dad, my dating relationship, my experience at that grade level, my peer relationships, my, my relationship with my kids. So when we bring pain into the classroom we bring liability into the classroom. And so anytime, you know, the, and that, what that means is that when, when, when a student says the right thing or does just the right thing, it's going to trigger us. So one thing I would want to do is explore within my own heart. What do I need to diffuse within me? Are there certain words that trigger me? Are there certain languages, the, you know, certain volumes that trigger me? Are there certain attitudes that trigger me and why are they my triggers and, and how can I surrender that and let go of that? So first thing I would say is you're frustrated totally get it. Don't blame you. I think it's probably good that you're frustrated and overwhelmed because that tells me that you're a human being. Number two, go within and, and start exploring your inner world and asking you, why is that so difficult? So let me give you an example. Now, uh, let's say a student gets physically aggressive and, and hits a teacher, you know, God forbid, right? But it happened. No matter who the teacher is, a blow is going to hurt it's going to be painful, right? Because, you know, physical aggression is physical aggression, but let's take that out of the, out of the, the, the picture. And let's say that a kid says to one teacher, this class sucks and you suck. Well, one teacher will be just aghast. How dare you speak to me that way? I feel deeply wounded by that. And another teacher will say, well, thanks for telling me, telling me how you feel. Let's process that. Right. So now you're starting to get into some differences, you know, at, at, at a teacher level, What what's really, really hurtful for one teacher isn't necessarily hurtful for another teacher, which tells me that there's a way to engage that interaction that's not hurtful for me. So I would want to know again, why does this thing trigger me so much? And what do I need to clean up in my own inner world so that that's not so damaging for me? And that makes me more sustainable. So those are a couple of thoughts I had.
0: I, no, I think that's brilliant. And, and what the recurring theme that I keep hearing is that really so much of this begins with the secure base, right? We, we yeah. t- say the teacher or the parent is the secure base. And so talk to me about behavior as communication. I know for myself, I left college with my teaching degree and I believed behavior was communication, but maybe not didn't really understand it because as soon as the rage happened or the kid freaked out and destroyed my classroom, suddenly behavior just needed to be extinguished. Yeah. So could you uh, just maybe talk a little bit to behavior as communication and really understanding that?
1: Yeah. You know, I think about the, the, the game charade, you know, it's like, you can't use language. You have to use your body and you have to get people to guess what you're thinking. Right. Um, that's what, so you act out. That's what, that's what acting out is. That's what actors do is I'm going to, I'm going to move my body in such a way that you have some sense of what's going on inside of me. When you think about emotion, a lot of kids don't grow up hearing the script of, oh, that thing that you're experiencing inside, it's called anger. It's okay to have that. And this is what you do with it. You know, they, they don't get that roadmap. So they've got the stuff building inside of them. They don't even know what it is. They don't even know that it's an emotion or that it's a fuel, and, but it's got to come out. And so they act it out. They charade it out, you know. Um, And that's their, their only way to communicate. This is what I'm, I'm, I'm feeling and thinking. Let me, let me display this to you. And we, what we don't understand as adults is that behavior, it's just a symptom. Uh, It's a symptom of the emotion. And so when we start talking about behavior management in a classroom, it drives me crazy because why would I want to do behavior management? Because by definition, what I'm saying is let's do symptom management. You've got got a a severe illness. Well, let me throw some Tylenol at it. You know, that'll, that'll bring the fever down. Well, maybe, but that's just treating a symptom. Right. And there's a time and a place for that, but it doesn't get to the core issue. You know, so as long as we're focusing on, well, this was their behavior and this is what they need to change that behavior. You know, this is the consequence they need. We're just locked into this sort of Vengeance based sense of justice to treat symptoms. And I'm just thinking like, man, you know, that might have worked in the 50s, but we're in a different world now. And, and we've got to start looking at that, seeing past the behavior to say, what was that? If this were a game of charades, what were that student tried? What, what should I be guessing about their inner world? And then how can I intervene with that?
0: I love that you said that because that's a lot of what we teach. Is like these are symptoms. These are symptoms. Yeah, and totally. so I was a teacher. Now I'm an RN. So I use a lot of you can't. You come into the the ER and I look at your arm and it's got a festering wound and I just put a white bandage over it and it looks all pretty and clean. Yeah. There's still a wound over there. I've just managed yeah. to make it look good. Right. You know. And one of the things I would love for you to talk about too is you know we talk a lot about fight or flight because those are those are the external symptoms we see in kids and adults that are very out there and in your face. And those are the ones that concern us and demand the most attention. But could you also speak to the other way that we handle trauma, or we handle aces, and that's the freezer fawn? Because we miss a lot of times those students.
1: We do, you know, and, and it's sort of one of those, just a classic case of the squeaky wheel getting the oil. When you when you go into freeze, you're not you're not you're squeaking, you know, like the nuanced eye can say that that student looks really withdrawn, really disengaged. That's a squeak for the trained mental health professional. But in in an educational system, the educational system isn't set up to perceive that level of squeak like the the auditory range, so to speak, doesn't capture that frequency of, of the squeaky wheel. So yes, I mean that—that's the student that's um, most likely to to get overlooked, most likely to, as they say, fall through the cracks or whatever it might be. So when when you sort of go into a shutdown mode, in fact, not not only are you you likely to get overlooked, you're likely to get praised. Like, oh, you're yes. such a quiet kid, man. That's awesome. Thanks so much for not being a pain in my neck. Yeah, it's it's very problematic.
0: We do an exercise with with teachers on that where we talk about um, identifying the student in your classroom that needs your attention. Cause a lot of times the relief in the behaviors that a student's is, is demanding attention, right. Mm-hmm. Or they need that attention or that one-on-one. And then we ask teachers to be intentional for 10 days to give that student five minutes of their time that has nothing to do with school. Mm-hmm. So they will intentionally go and talk to that student yeah. for five yeah. minutes about things that are unrelated to school. But we've, we've started asking them to also identify the student that is the withdrawn student, the one that is, The pleaser or the fawner, the one that is basically flying under the radar, that there's just something a little off. And you're right, the trained mental health professional identifies that. But the reality is is most teachers actually, once you bring it to their attention, identify it as well. And so today I would love for our audience to, to be thinking about those students as well, because what happens is we understand that kids that process trauma or that are the freeze or fawn behaviors they tend to move to self-harm. So mm-hmm. we see a lot of those students move to cutting or suicidal ideation or just internal harm. And so I think that that's an important thing that we, we make sure we look at because we definitely see the squeaky wheel in our classroom, mm-hmm. but maybe we aren't seeing the kid that's flying under the radar. Yeah, absolutely. So. All right, I'm gonna end with this question for you. What what are your thoughts? I I would love you to walk me through a scenario. I have a student in my classroom, he's out of control, Mm -hmm. he is up out of his seat and yelling, what would be this trauma-informed best SEL practice in managing that student in that moment? Because in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I would say out of my classroom to the principal. Yeah. Walk me through what that would look like in the optimal classroom world.
1: Well, in the optimal classroom world, uh, there would have been a lot of work done um, before that event happened. And, and the work done before that happened is, um, uh, you know, have I engaged in what I call non-contingent communication with that student, meaning communication that's not contingent on a task or an activity. It's not business management language. It's how are you doing kind of language, get to know you language. Um, so, you know, if I had a student that was coming into my class that I knew had a reputation of being a disruptor and, you know, um, having a hard time engaging. And you will
0: know, teachers will tell you. (laughs) Totally, totally,
1: yeah. And so right away from from the get-go, hey, Adam, thanks for being in my class, man. How was your weekend? Hey, where'd you get those shoes? I love them, man. What, who's your favorite YouTuber? Tell me that, because I want to check them out, right? And just that has nothing to do with anything. It's just, I want to get to know you. And I would just do a lot of that. Um, and that goes a long way because when that student is, is escalated and acting out, um, the person that they're going to respond to most favorably is the person um, that there's a direct correlation between a student's response in, in escalation and their level of connectedness to an adult. And so it doesn't, you know, I used to think that I was going to come into a a, a scenario where a student was acting out and they were going to hear that my name was Dr. Adam signs, and they were going to say, "Oh, Doctor Sign." Sa- okay, you must be really important. Yeah, let me, let me let me do what you say because they call you Doctor. Like as if, right? But the, the the person the student responds to in a moment of crisis is the person with whom they've had the deepest connection, and it could be it could be Doctor Science, but it could be the teacher, it could be the the school officer, it could be the you know the food service person, the custodian. It's whoever got to know the kid. So again, back to the question: the students in a, in a Peak escalation stage, you know, what do I do? Well, it should have been, what have I been doing? And, but in that moment, what do I do is just, you just reflect back to them, what you see, like, Adam, it looks like you're really, really angry. Your, your, your hands are tense. You know, you're, you're using loud language and, and you're being verbally aggressive. Do you feel angry right now? Blankety blank. I feel angry. Blah 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 blah. All of that. Okay, great. No no problem. I feel angry too. Uh, So you validate the feeling and you say, "Well, what can we do to help you?" Well, you can get out of my face. You can give me a million dollars, whatever it might be. Well, I can't do any of those things. But these are some options that you have. You know, you can go sit down and and catch your breath. You can you can step outside of the classroom, and you have a menu of options that that, that, where they can link that angry emotion to behaviors that are adaptive and not maladaptive. And then uh, and you offer them those choices. And then if if you've got and, and of course. At first, it's not going to work, but it takes time, you know, um, uh, for for the, the, the student to understand, oh, this is the protocol. When I get mad, I can do these things. Again, maybe one thing I would tell a teacher that's dealing with that situation is that navigating a student out of that is sort of like. Learning to slam an alley oop in basketball—that's not step one. First is what is a basketball? <laughs> how do I dribble it? How do I dribble it and do a layup? How do I run to the hoop, and catch the ball midair, and then make a basket? Now, how do I have somebody feed? You know, that's a complex series of behaviors that takes time. And so, it's sort of you know when you have a student acting out like that at the beginning of the year, there there's no wand that you wave over that where the kid says, "Oh, cool, I get it now." Thank you. After you know seven years of aggressive behavior in the classroom, I never thought of it that way, but golly, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. I'll sit down. Said no, no kid ever. Right. So just know that it just takes time. It just takes time.
0: I've tried telling him to calm down. That doesn't work either.
1: Yeah. Can (laughs) you imagine that? You just need to calm down, right?
0: All right. Dr. Science. today has been so amazing. I would Mm -hmm. love for you to end with what book you might be reading at the moment.
1: What book am I reading at the moment? I am reading a book of, uh, Joseph Campbell was one of my, my favorite writers, my undergraduate degree is in English, and he talks a lot about the power of story and myth. And uh, so I'm reading a book on comparative religion, looking at the stories that people tell in religious traditions and what truths those stories carry that speak to universal truths that we um, engage in the human experience. And so I, I love Mason Joseph Campbell.
0: Awesome. Well, everyone, I encourage you to pick up the EQ intervention or the power of the teacher by Dr. Adam Sines. He is an amazing author as well as speaker. And we are just incredibly grateful for his time today on Trauma for Breakfast. Thank you everyone for tuning in. We hope you join us next time on Trauma for Breakfast. We're so thankful that you all shared in today's conversation. We are always here and ready to set one more place at the table. Thanks for joining us on Trauma for Breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is brought to you and supported by Matt Force, working together to reduce substance abuse and Yavapai County Community Health Services, working toward healthier communities.